Let's open in our Bibles to the book of Daniel. We're going to start a new series this morning on the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is really, uh, a lot of it is historical narrative. It's, uh, it's going to be talking about Daniel's life. Some of it is apocalyptic. It's going to be written. There's visions that Daniel sees. We'll be talking about, about those. But we're going to start our journey through the book of Daniel this morning. And the life of Daniel is really the story of a young man who lived right in the midst of wrong. And so that's the, that's the title for the series for this book, is uh, Living Right in the Midst of Wrong. Or maybe we could say the title could have been better, maybe Living a Life Without Compromise, because I believe that's sort of how da- Daniel and three of his friends lived their life. Now, the setting for the book of Daniel or the beginning of the book of Daniel, I should say, is the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, who is the son of the king of Babylon, was occupying the territory of Judah. He had come down there, defeated everyone. He had actually defeated Judah. Uh, he had set up a vassal king there, Jehoiakim. His father, uh, Nebopolazar, I practiced that a bunch this morning, and it still didn't come out right. I had it right there earlier, but it's Nabopolezer, Lazar, anyway. That was his dad. He was the reigning monarch in, in Babylon. And so while Nebuchadnezzar is down there pilfering treasure from all the different countries and taking hostages of all the young men in these, in these territories, He gets a message, an urgent message from back home that his father has died and he needs to come back and reclaim the throne. And so Nebuchadnezzar returns back to Babylon and when he goes, he takes with him a number of young men as hostages, basically captives. And among the men that he takes back to to Babylon are Daniel and three of his very close friends. Now, Jewish tradition says that Daniel was part of the royal family, that he was, you know, in some, some form or fashion, he was one of David's descendants. He may have been as young as 13 when they took him. A lot of folks think he was around 15. I don't know that anybody knows for sure, but he was a very young man, and he would travel 1,500 miles, leave his family, and be captive in Babylon. Uh, at this point, the destruction of Jerusalem and the great exile to Babylon has not taken place. You remember from our study in the Minor Prophets, I know we have some guests that probably weren't here for that, but we studied through the Minor Prophets in the Old Testament, and they were divided between pre-exilic prophets and post-exilic prophets with a 70-year exile in the middle. And, and so this is really pre-exile. It's just on the, we're really on the cusp of the exile taking place in just a few years. And that's when the book of Daniel begins. Daniel is taken before the, the destruction of Jerusalem and before the big exile. So we have, if you have your Bibles to Daniel, we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 5. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, the land of Shinar is another way of saying Babylon, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And then the king ordered Aspenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, for youth in whom was no defect, 
who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him, that is, uh, Aspenaz, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is another way of saying the Babylonians. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter to the king's personal service. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a really intelligent political leader. He chose some of the most gifted men, young men from Judah, and actually not just Judah, but from all the territories that he conquered. He would take these young men of noble birth, men who were good-looking, men who were intelligent, and his plan was to train them and teach them and lead them to kind of team up with him in political leadership in, in Babylon. Now, we aren't told Nebuchadnezzar's exact motivation in taking these young men, but I, I want to suggest something. And I want to suggest that the reason why he would take these young men who were the cream of the crop what was simply this, that if the cream of the crop would buy into their culture, if the cream of the crop would go along with Nebuchadnezzar, then the rest of the rank-and-file people would follow. So I, I think Nebuchadnezzar is, is smart and even maybe even brilliant in his plan that if he could win over these most intelligent uh, handsome young men, intelligent young leaders of, nob of nobility and even, even of royal blood. If he could win them over, then everyone else would follow suit. Now, notice he took young people. I think that's important. You know, he didn't take the old influential folks. He took the young people. And the reason why he took the young people, I think, is also obviously clear. And it is that the young men are still open to influence ways. The young men have not been hardened by the seasons of life. They, they haven't become set in their ways from years of doing things a certain way or believing a certain thing. They're open to learning. And, and so, again, it doesn't say this, but I believe Nebuchadnezzar believed that he could influence them the best. And so that's why he chose some of these young men. Now, he had a fourfold strategy that is seen, I think, in the text. And, and the fourfold strategy that Nebuchadnezzar was going to use with these young men was this. He was going to give them a new viewpoint, literature and music. He was going to give them a new language. He was going to give them new food. And he was going to give them new names. And I think the goal of all of that was to kind of rip out their identity and lead them to, I'd put in my notes, compromise, but that's really not exactly right. I think he was trying to lead them to conform to this new culture in which they were going to find themselves. And so his goal is to get these young men, these really intelligent, good-looking men who are in leadership back home, who would have been in leadership back home, he's going to get them in his new culture, immerse them in his new culture, and in the process he'd win them over, and they would become influential amongst their people. At least I think that's what he was trying to do. Now amongst the young men that he chose, we look at verse 6 in your book, it tells us their names. I'm actually going to tell you what their names mean as I read the verse. This is chapter 1, verse 6. Among these were some from Judah. Daniel, name meaning God is my judge. Hananiah, that his name meant the Lord has been gracious. Mishael, the Lord, the one who comes from God. Azariah, the Lord is my helper. So you notice all four of these young men had what we would call really biblical names, you know, really names focused on God. Then the commander of the officials assigned them new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, the secret, and this his name meant, this new name meant the secret of their god Baal. To Hananiah, 
he, he ascribed the name Shadrach, and that name meant the inspiration of the sun god. To Mishael, he gave him the name Meshach, and that name meant to him, he who belongs to the goddess Shishak. And Azariah, he changed his name to Abednego, and that meant servant of Nebo, who was the morning star. So the king changed their names from names that pointed them to Jehovah to names that pointed them to different, different gods. And again, I, I think his whole goal, his whole goal was to conform them to his culture. He gave them new names, gave them a new food, taught them a new language, language he gave them a new culture. Now here's what I want to say to us this morning. I, I think this, our situation, though it's different from Daniel and his friends, you know, has some similarities as well. So listen to what I'm going to say because this really kind of is the, this is the crux of what I believe God wants to show us from, from this chapter one in the book of Daniel. And it's this, that, that our culture has changed and many of those who lead in our culture want us to capitulate to the new culture. They want us to conform to the new culture. They want us to give in. They want us to go away. They want us to surrender our understanding of culture and conform to the culture that everyone is saying, this is the new norm. This is our new culture. Let me talk to our young people for just a moment. Okay, I'm going to talk to you young folks. Listen to me what I'm going to say. The leaders of our new culture... They're coming for you, okay? I don't mean that like as ominous maybe as it sounds, but they are coming for you just like Nebuchadnezzar was coming for those young men. He, the, our culture, they're going to try to change your mind. They're going to try to change your heart. They're going to try to change your allegiances because they recognize this. If they'll change the youth of our culture, they'll change our culture for decades, if not, not generations. Their, their target uh, is primarily the schools, young kids in school, changing the curriculum, changing our moral norms, changing the fountain from which we determine truth. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, our cultural leadership, our cultural elite, as they're often called, are succeeding in their efforts. Researchers have found that one-third of young Americans today say their views on abortion have changed in recent years. Nearly three times as many young Americans say they have become more supportive of abortion rights rather than opposed, 25% to 9%, according to the PRRI. In contrast, seniors, age 65 and up, are twice as likely to say that they have become more opposed to abortion rights, 12% uh, versus a, a 6% in support. So in other words, 12% of seniors say they're, they're more strongly in favor of, of of, of life, okay, 6% of seniors say, no, they, they, they want more abortion. And, and, of course, with the young people, it's exactly the opposite. Pew Research found that the public support of same-sex marriage has grown rapidly over the past decade. In 2007, Americans opposed the legalization of same-sex marriage by a margin of 54% to 37 the Pew, the Pew Research uh, Center, I mean, these, these are really good numbers, okay? I mean, they're not skewed in any way. The Pew Research Center says that in the last 10 years, that's changed. It's two-thirds now in favor of same-sex marriage, 62%, with 32% opposing, opposing it. So it's actually reversed in, in 10 years. So culture is changing. So young people, here's what I want to ask you. What is your response to culture around you to be? What, what are you to do? But this is a question for all of us, right? What are we to do with the culture 
around us. Now, I want to show you, I tell you what, I'm really excited to preach this morning, to share this talk with you. I, I have just, uh, it just really came together. I feel like I have something really from the Lord to challenge us. And not that I'm not always trying to do that, but you know, just in your heart, how you feel, I kind of feel that way today. And, uh, and, and I want to show you four, four things that I think Daniel did in culture. And I want to suggest these four things for all of us today, okay? I mean, these are so relevant for us, and I, and I believe we'll have such a, a, an impactful application on our lives if we will heed them. So let's kind of dive in. Verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Here's the first thing that we need to do with culture. Here's, here's the first thing I think Daniel did. We must engage culture. We must immerse ourselves, be a part of culture. Of all the four things that the king wanted to do with them, Daniel didn't have a problem learning their language. He, he didn't seem to be bothered by the fact that he was going to learn their history and their literature and their music. That wasn't even on his radar. In fact, he would do really well at those things. It didn't even seem to bother him. It's bothered me more that they changed his name than it seems to have bothered him. But when it came to eating the food, that bothered him, and he wouldn't do it. Now, we're going to talk about the food in just a second, just a couple minutes, right? But, but I want to set this food aside, and what I want you to see is Daniel's engagement in his new culture that he found himself in. I mean, he, he got fully immersed in his culture, in the literature, the reading, the language learning, his new name. I mean, he is involved in culture, as we'll see. Now, let's start by defining culture and what that means. Culture is the sum of the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group, a people group, a nation. It can also be said that culture is the characteristic features of everyday existence shared by people in a place or a time. Now, some people think that culture is a war that we're in, and it's something to be won. That is not true. Listen to me carefully. Culture is not a war that we're in and something to be won. Culture is rather something that is ongoing and it's something that we must engage in so that we can influence it for the positive. So we can influence it for the way that God desires culture to be. Now, all too often, all too often in our world as followers of Jesus, we have this circle the, the wagon mentality about culture. Culture around us is changing, and, and maybe it's even becoming hostile towards us as believers. Really, I, I think they're, they're pretty much removing our, our, our privileged status that we've had in the past. But, but regardless, let's just say it's becoming hostile. So our answer so often is let's retreat from public life. Let's, let's get out here. Let's go hide ourselves. But that is not what Jesus called us to do, and it's not what Daniel did. All right? We are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Jesus' point is, is he calls us to engage culture, to affect it, not separate it from it not separate ourselves from it. The Christian monastic movement began somewhere in the, in the third century, okay? And ever since then, men have been removing themselves from culture, isolating themselves in monasteries so they can give themselves completely to Jesus. I mean, that's a great thought, but that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus told us to do. 
He did not tell us to go and isolate ourselves. He told us to go and to be salt and light in culture. Even in our own country, you know, we may have not bought into the whole monastic movement, but we bought into some of this kind of thinking. And so back in the middle of last century, I mean, we kind of gave up the media. We gave up politics. We, we kind of isolated ourselves from these areas of culture, the arts. And we, you know, because they said there's so many ungodly people in there. We're, those are just not professions for us as Christians. And what happened? I mean, our politics and our arts and our media and everything, they're run by people who have a very different worldview and a very different cultural desire than us, and we basically abandon our place of, of influence in those areas. When we tried to do those things, we would, we would use them in our own Christian bubble just for ourselves. After all, why should you go on Twitter and tweet when you can go on Christian chirp and chirp? Did y'all know that? I didn't even know that. There, there's a Christian twi Twitter called Christian Cheap, Chirp, sure. <laughs> why would you do that? Some of you say, why would you tweet to start with? I, I get that, you know, but, but my point is, why would we take what little influence we have and, and want to kind of cocoon it just among ourselves? In 1979, Jerry Falwell organized the Moral Majority and tried once again to exercise influence on culture at large. But, but honestly, it was too late, and I'm not even sure all of his methods were the best, right? Uh, culture had moved, and culture has continued to move. And, and to be honest with you folks, I, culture, I believe, is still going to continue to move. And away, away from the kind of culture and flourishing that God desires for societies. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us, his followers, this is what he said. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a, they put it on a stand and gives but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I realize that the focus of verse 16 is on how we act, but but how we act has to do with what we say. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying we don't take this thing that God has done in us by redeeming us and changing us and renewing our mind. We don't take this thing and hide it from the world. We take this thing and we put it up there where everyone can see it. We, we don't put a bushel over it. We put it up there. There is no way for us to engage culture and influence it if we're going to somehow divorce ourselves from culture. When Jesus said that we're the salt and the light, he's saying we have a, we have a positive, we have a, an influence that is preserving culture, changing culture for the better. And I think, now y'all might disagree with me, but I think Daniel got this. Because all through Daniel's life, Daniel is going to stay engaged in culture. He's going to be in political leadership his entire life in, in, the, in the country of Babylon. And he is going to be a voice person for God's truth. He's going to stay connected his entire life. And he's going to influence. Listen, I, I don't know whether Daniel got it or not, but maybe he did. Hey, listen, friends. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to influence us. He's not going to influence us. We're going to take our position and we're going to influence them. We're going to influence the places where we are. I, I, think, that was his, I think that was his heart. So to communicate with them, he, he learned their language because he knew that if he was going to have kind of an impact in, in Babylon, he had to speak their heart language. 
He evidently learned their history and their beliefs and read their literature and maybe listened to their music at some level to understand. If he was going to influence them, he, he evidently gladly accepted his name change. I don't see anywhere where he complains about that. It used to bug me. I, I, made, a, I made a decision that I was not going to call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because those were their pagan names, right? I was going to call them by their, by their God-given influence, those names. And then this week I had this thought. What does Saul do as soon as he gets converted and then goes out to reach the Greeks? What does he do? Changes his name. Why does he change his name? changes his name so he can better relate with the people that he's trying to reach and win. Now, here's my point. I'm not saying that Daniel and them were really happy about the name change, but I, I think they understood, hey, this is just a means and a, and a way by which I can influence the Babylonian culture as opposed to letting them influence me. So, brothers and sisters, man, I think Daniel in chapter 1 is a, is a great call for all of us to engage culture and not retreat from it. Now, let me go on to the second thing from Daniel. Here's the second thing we've got to learn from him. We must resist culture. Well, isn't the best way to resist culture to not engage culture? I mean, that's what the monks think, right? The best way to resist culture is for me to go and isolate myself from culture. I say, maybe it is the best way, but it's not the Jesus way. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to do it Jesus' way. And Jesus' way is not to disengage from culture. Jesus' way is for us to be salt and light in the culture. So we engage, but we must resist wrong, immorality, that which is hurtful, that which is, not, is contrary to God. We have to resist those things and not give in to the culture around us. This is where our influence comes in. Daniel would accept so much, but he wouldn't go along with the food. Now, why didn't he go along with the food? I mean, in my book, man, the food is the, the least of his worries, right? But not according to Daniel. Daniel wouldn't go along with the king's choice food because it violated God's law for him. We're not told exactly how uh, it was, but, you know, God had given Israel dietary laws, certain things they could eat, certain things they couldn't eat. And, and so evidently, what they were being asked to eat went against those dietary laws. Or maybe it was food offered to idols, and so Daniel didn't want to do that. Which, whatever it was, Daniel and his friends recognized that to eat the food was to violate God's law. Engaging culture doesn't mean we capitulate or conform to what is ungodly or wrong. It means that we have, this is where our influence comes in, it's when we stand up against culture for what's right and speak truth in such a way that's compelling, that's how we're going to influence culture by standing against it and resisting it. As we engage culture, there are going to be a lot of things that we can't go along with. Okay? There's going to be a lot of things that we, we just can't be involved in, that we don't agree with, that we believe are wrong. And, and, just, and just like Daniel, we're going to have to resist those things. We're going to have to stand up for those things and say, nope, I don't care if all the rest of the culture is for them. They're not right, and I'm not doing that. All right? Now, one thing that I do want to point out that maybe you notice, maybe you don't, but Daniel may be 13 years old. Maybe he's 15 years old. Let's give him 15. And yet at the age of 15, he understands the intersection between God's will and culture. He, he understands where the, where the problem is. He understands what, the line that he can't cross over if he's going to be obedient to God. How did he get that? How at the age of 13 or 15... Did, did Daniel know the intersection of God's law and Babylonian culture? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? His parents taught him. The synagogue taught him. He was taught well. 
I, I don't think we can stress the importance from Daniel 1 of teaching, teaching our kids the Bible. Now, parents, listen to what I'm going to say now. This is your deal. This is your calling. It's not mine. It's not even ours as the church. It's yours. If you're a follower of Jesus, your children have been entrusted to you. I mean, God says, if you've got children, I'm entrusting them to you. It's your responsibility, if you're a follower of Jesus, to sow into your children the word of God. Now, please don't hear me saying that that doesn't mean that the rest of us don't have a part in that. We absolutely do. I mean, your, ch your kids, by default, are our kids, right? We're the extended family. So all of us are going to hopefully be sowing into our children, but the bulk of the responsibility is yours. I've been there. I've been there. I had six of them, six little ones. And, and, I, and I know how hard it is, but I want to say to you young parents, don't give up. Don't give up and, and, and just make it a priority. Don't let all these other things in culture. I mean, this is where we do what's right, and we resist the culture to not do wrong. And so, hey, you can, you can sow baseball, and you can sow all kinds of other stuff, you know, dance, and whatever you're sowing into your kids, that's great. But you better make sure that the Word of God is your primary sowing into your kids. Because, you know, they might end up being like Daniel. They're, they're, actually, they're living, they're like Daniel. They're living in a culture that's, our influence in culture has changed, and so culture is becoming this really big influence. So parents, this is, you know, I mean... You know, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. I'm just, just calling you to step up to this great responsibility that's yours. And by the way, that's, that's why we don't separate our young people. That's why we've been trying to do something different and not separate our young people, especially in high school, from, you know, from the learning activities that we have as adults because we think that'll help you young people. And let me just speak to you high schoolers for just a moment. Some of you are just not participating. I mean, let me urge you to change that. Just because we don't have a high school class, I mean, come be a part. Be a part of the adult learning of this class. I mean, adult learning of the Word of God so that you can engage culture but know where you've got to resist and draw the line. Now, how do we know where the line is? How do we know where, where we, what we have to resist? Well, I'm going to give you three sources of light. Here they are. You have light from within. You know where you need to result. You know, you know when you need to resist culture? Part of it's going to be internal. You've got a conscience that God has given you. And, and so when your conscience is telling you this is wrong, I can't go along with my peers, as hard as it is, this is where you young people, old people, we've got to stand up and say, no, nah, I'm not doing that. My conscience is telling me that's wrong. Light from within. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says that men suppress the truth of God on the inside. So you know what happens, and some of you can relate to this, and I, I bet you even as I'm talking, God's bringing something to mind where the Spirit of God, your conscience, is, is just told you something's wrong, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and eventually it goes away because you've suppressed it, and you've pushed it down, and God hardens you to that. Number two, you have light from without. You get excellent counsel from other Christians. Proverbs eleven fourteen. Where, where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. It doesn't say so, but I bet you Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Belteshazzar, <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I bet you those four guys sat down and said, hey, where's the line? What can't we do? Man, we can't. We can't eat this food. 
can't eat this food. There's wisdom in counsel. So listen, if you're struggling with, you know, culture pushing on you and you're wondering whether, you know, how does, how does my Christian faith and culture, what do I need to, where do I need to stand? Where, what, what can I do? What can I not do with culture? Man, talk to people around you that are believers that, that you know are ahead of you in the game. Talk with them. Get advice. Get help. And the third thing, and this is the most important, light from above. The best sort of source of light is is God himself. James says, anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God. God's law is where we get light. We cannot violate God's law when it comes to culture. You know, that's what, that's what so many Christians are doing now, though. You know, they're, they're trying to engage culture, and I applaud them for that. But they're engaging culture, but jettisoning the only place that will give them a, a true evaluation of culture. We have to evaluate culture against God's word, so you need to do that. Our culture is changing rapidly, and, uh, and you and I need to be presenting God's culture, God's truth. Same-sex marriage, sex before marriage, gender fluidity, egalitarianism, the, view of porno- the viewing of pornography, the accommodation of materialism, the priority of hedonism, uh, the use of social media. I mean, these are all areas that, that culture is pressing on us, and we have to have a, a response. How do you get a response to those things? From the Word of God. And we just don't violate that. As much as in Daniel's day, I believe we need to engage culture and resist culture. The third thing we got to do that Daniel did is we must grace culture. Look at verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with wine with which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of, of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youth who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. You probably get that, but the guy is basically saying, the king would say, why do these guys look worse? I didn't make them eat the food, and the king's going to cut my head off. That's what the guy says. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let us, our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youth who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold choice food and the wine that they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Now, it says Daniel and his buddies made a decision not to defile themselves. They, they, weren't, going to, they weren't going to embrace culture where it was sinful. But don't you, did you notice how he handled himself? And here's what I want you to see. He handles himself with graciousness and kindness. I, I guess da- Daniel could have in self-righteousness stood up on his soapbox, ridden his high horse, demanded with pomposity that they give him the right kind of food because he was of the royal family of David and all of that. That's not what he does. In grace, he submits to the authority and asks for permission. When the man in authority pushes back, notice what Daniel does. Daniel suggests a, suggests a compromise. Here's the point that I want you to notice. Daniel is treating others, this Babylonian guy over him, with grace and kindness and with dignity and not with arrogance and anger. Now, too many of us in confronting culture, we're defo- we're, we are confronting culture in a very different way. 
We're, we're demanding of culture that it change back to what it used to be, that, we put it, that somebody put it back the way it was. Listen to me, everyone. Nobody's going to put it back. Nobody's going to put it back. If culture is ever going to return to be more in keeping with God's desire of flourishing in our culture, if it's going to go back, it's going to be because we influence culture to go back. I mean, we can make laws for a little while, and I'm not trying to speak against laws, but we can make laws for a little while that might retard some of this, but laws ain't taking it back. No, that wasn't good English. Laws are not taking it back. Only our influence will take it back. Our forefathers influenced culture, and they gave us America. We gave up our influence. We're giving up our influence, and we need to be speaking now and engaging culture, speaking God's will. But when, when, we, when we engage culture, we need to do it with humility and grace and kindness, just like Daniel demonstrated. Our harsh and unkind words on social media are not the way of God. Our rudeness and vitriol wins over no one. I mean, listen to me, what I'm saying. You think you're going to win an argument by being a jerk? You're not going to win any arguments that way. And that's not what God's called us to do. Listen to what Paul told us. Okay, I don't care what anybody else is doing. Listen to what God called Bacon's Castle family to do. He says, Paul said to us, speak the truth in, and you know it, speak the truth in, speak the truth in, Okay, we're to speak the truth. Don't misunderstand God. We're to speak truth. We're to say, listen, I know you have same-sex attraction, but there's no such thing as same-sex marriage. I, I know you really want to desire, I know you desire to have sex outside of marriage, but you know what? That's morally wrong. And, and on and on it goes. We speak the truth. We just do it in love. And then he says this. He says, let your speech always, always Always, my emphasis, be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Jesus told us unequivocally, love your enemies. Love your enemies. I mean, this is for us, everyone. So, so what gives with our unloving, self-righteous speech, especially on social media? It's almost like we hide behind our Facebooks and our Twitter accounts and all that kind of stuff, and we think we can say anything we want to say in some way that's just, it's not the kind of speech that God wants us to have. Speak the truth, yes, but speak it in, in the right sort of way with grace. Engage culture, yes. Resist culture, absolutely. Grace culture, definitely. Now, I'm done with my last point. Here's my last point from Daniel. We must persist in culture. Engaging culture isn't a one day, it's not a one week, it's not even a one year event. Engaging culture is a lifetime thing. It's not a war we win, it's a never settle thing. We must persist in, in culture, persist in influencing culture. Look at verse 17. And for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams and then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for their presenting them, which was three years, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. I think that means he interviewed them. And out of them all, out of them all, none, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In fact, these guys were the cream of the crop as far as all of these people that, that King Nebuchadnezzar had kept. 
These were the top four. So they entered into the king's personal service. And as for a matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, so over time, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers uh, who were all in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. There's a lot in those closing verses, but let me just note them for you. These four men are blessed by God to learn. They're gifted by God. That doesn't take away that I... I imagine they studied. I imagine they applied themselves, but said God had gifted them this way. Daniel was given the ability to understand dreams, interpret dreams, and boy, that's going to play a big part in Daniel's career. They, they were the best Nebuchadnezzar had, 10 times better than anybody else. But what I really want you to notice is the last verse of chapter 1. The last verse says, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Here's the point. Daniel never disengaged from affecting culture his entire life. Until the very end, Daniel was the satrap or whatever his title was. At one point, he's the, he's the lead under the king. He, he has this very influential position in culture, and he's using it. And he uses it all the way till the advent of Cyrus. And Cyrus is 70 years. The exile is 70 years. Daniel got there before. I don't know how Daniel, old Daniel is, but he must be 80-some years old. And, and so when Daniel, Daniel, all the way till his death, he's in service. I spoke to the young people just a moment ago. Let me speak to you older people. You are not to disengage from this world, from affecting culture. You are not permitted to retire from your service to our king. You're not permitted to, to, to back away from ministry and serving and, and seeking to influence culture by what you do and what you say. You, you never get old enough that you can. I realize that the older we get, you know, the slower, the slower we become and, and all of that kind of stuff. I recognize that. But, but to, our, to us older people, we, we have to stay engaged in culture so that we can speak to it, so we can, we can bring God's truth to bear on culture in love. We've got to do that, everybody. Stay informed. Learn what your culture is, where your culture is heading. Learn what's happening in culture. Listen to things so that you can learn. Two of the podcasts, and I know you'll get tired of me saying this, but I don't seem to be making much progress with it, but I'm telling you, one of the greatest things and tools in our hand today is podcasting. And two podcasts that I listen to every day just about, at least every week, is the Breakpoint Podcast and the Briefing Podcast. You know what these two podcasts are about? They're about culture. They're about what's happening in our culture. They're about how our culture is, is impacting our Christian faith. It's talking about how our Christian faith and how you and I can impact culture. And I listen to both of them. And I, and, I tell you, I, and I do that not because I'm a pastor. I do that because I'm Jimmy the Christian. And I really want to challenge all of you, especially you older folks, and you younger people too. We have to stay engaged all the way to the end. We cannot just, we can't bow out at some point because it's too hard or I've done my bit. There is no done my bit stuff, okay? You know, we are called to persist until the first year of Cyrus. We're called to persist till the day I meet the Lord. So some of you this morning, you know, I, th I think you just, you've checked out of culture. You say, hey, let it go to hell. I don't care. I, it's not my business. I got my little world. I got my church family. I'm telling you, that's, that's wrong thinking. That's not what Jesus called us to do. He called us to impact our culture. You're the salt and you're the light. So, 
I'm finished. Here's my conclusion. We live in a, why is somebody laughing over there? We live in a flawed, fallen, sinful world that God is redeeming, and, and he will ultimately totally redeem. This has become one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's Romans 8. Just listen. Romans 8 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So God tells us, listen, when, when we fell, against, when we sinned against God and, and, and cast our world into brokenness, I mean, it wasn't just us and our relationships that were cast into brokenness. The world itself was cast into brokenness. And, and, and Paul says, man, this world is longing for the day that God's going to change that and release that brokenness that our whole world, our universe experiences. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. See, our adoption isn't final yet, everybody. The redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for this. The world is waiting for this. God's going to fix it. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait, with it, wait for it with patience. Paul is telling us, listen, there's coming a day where God's going to fix everything. He's going to redeem the world. He's going to redeem us. You know, uh, we, we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for our full adoption as sons of God. That's what we hope for. And, you know, and that's what, that's what all of us need to do. You need to keep your focus on that. Don't, don't forget God is going to fix all of this evil. He's going to fix it. He, he's fixed it in Christ, and he's going to bring it to fruition. And we will inherit, we as, as those who have put our faith in God, we, we will inherit, we will inherit all, we will inherit the Garden of Eden all over again, not corrupted and broken by sin. And that is our hope, and you need to keep your mind and your heart set on that, okay? But though we look for that, listen to me care. I'm finished. I promise I am. I've got five more, three more minutes. We, we, we're focused on that, but that does not absolve us or free us from the responsibility of seeking to encourage culture today to embrace God's truth and to bring about the flourishing of society. Did you know that God's, God's way brings flourishing? Everything that's not against God's way brings death, man. I mean, that's what our world's experiencing, brokenness that results in just awful death everywhere. The corruption of all things. But Jesus brings flourishing. And we have a response. We have a responsibility to affect this world now, even though our hope is on that in the future. Everybody with me? I end with this quote from John Stott. John Stott wrote this in, in a book called, uh, and he's a book or an article called Four Ways Christians Can Influence the World. And this is John's quote, and I'm finished. John Stott, great influential uh, evangelical from last century, uh, one of the greatest. He said, if we are pessimist and think we are capable of doing nothing in human society today, I venture to say that we are theologically extremely unbalanced, if not actually heretical and harmful. It's ludicrous to say that Christians can have no influence in society. It's biblically and historically mistaken. Christianity has had an enormous influence on society down throughout its long and checkered history. Look at the conclusion of Kenneth Latourette in his seven-volume work on the history of the expansion of Christianity. Now, here's Lewis quoting Latourette. 
No life ever lived on this planet has been so influential in the affairs of men like the life of Jesus Christ. From that brief life and its apparent frustration has flowed a more powerful force for the triumphant waging of men's long battle than any other ever known by the human race. By it, millions have been lifted from illiteracy and ignorance and have been placed upon the road of growing intellectual freedom and control over the physical environment. It has done more to allay the physical ills of disease and famine than any other impulse known to man. It has emancipated millions from chattel, chattel slavery and millions of others from addiction to vice. It has protected tens of millions in exploitation by their fellows. It's been the most fruitful source of movement to lessen the horrors of war and to put the relations of men and nations on the, best, on the basis of justice and of peace. And that was Latourette, and this is back to, uh, back to John Stott. Christ and his church have had an enormous influence. And if only we were out and out for Jesus Christ in, full, in fullness of our commitment, then we would have far more influence than we do. So away with pessimism. Away also with blind optimism, as if we thought utopia was around the corner. No, Christians are sober-minded, biblical realists who have a balanced doctrine of creation for redemption and consummation. In other words, Romans 8, we recognize that's coming but we are not powerless. I'm afraid that we are rather, what we are rather is often lazy and short-sightedness and unbelieving and disobedient to the commission of Jesus. Let's be like Daniel. Let's be like Paul. By all means, let's be like Jesus, our Savior. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.